0: It struck me in preparing for this sermon that growing up I had extensive training in a number of fields, Uh, writing. I wrote a lot of papers. Some of you are writing a lot of papers right now. One paper after another in your academic program. Running, I was a cross country runner. I was uh, not destined for athletic glory and other pursuits. I wanted to be a basketball player. It didn't work out. Cross country was another thing, however, and so spent hours running. Band, I was in my high school band in my small, main high school. I debated before coming here to preach whether I would share in public the instrument I played. I don't know why I chose this instrument. I think it was because there were cute girls playing this instrument. I played the flute for eight years. (laughs) And you laughed at me, thank you. You laughed, I thought you would. And I laugh with you. uh, It it struck me as well that I had more training in these fields and in driving. Remember driver's ed, some of you? Driver's ed, how terrifying that was. Some Some of us, it's still terrifying. I had more training in driving than I did training for marriage. Isn't that interesting? I had more training for writing than training for the fundamental institution of my life. I had, I think, four to six you know, premarital counseling sessions, and they were really helpful, and I'm so thankful that churches provide them, and elders do them, and faithful men and women, you know, offer that. That's, that's great. Churches are some of the last institutions out there today who do, and yet you can't really get ready for marriage in four weeks, can you? It doesn't exactly capture everything you're going to need to know for the next several decades. Thankfully, we have a resource that does equip us and strengthen us in all the ways we possibly could need. It is the Word of God. The Word of God is what we need for living, period, and the Word of God is what we need to flourish in our marriage. Turn with me this morning, if you would, to Matthew 19, a key text for a theology of marriage. We're going to look at Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, zeroing in on verse 6 this morning. First book of the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 19, verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him, Jesus, by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray this morning that it would instruct us, help us, and strengthen us to serve you and live according to your will. We need your power to do this, Lord. We can't do this in our own strength. Equip us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. My purpose today is to help us see from this text, zeroing in on verse 6, how the gospel of grace informs and strengthens marriage. I have three biblical insights for you from the text this morning. The first insight from this verse, the gospel creates faithful husbands and wives. Marriage is not grounded in a contract. Marriage is not an exchange of relational goods and services. If you consistently take out the trash, I'll consistently cook you bacon, mac and cheese on Fridays. Now you're thinking about bacon, mac, and cheese. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is not an economic partnership. Marriage is not dependent on or constituted by our feelings, however, romantic. We may feel romantically toward one another, we may not. Marriage, as Jesus notes, quoting Genesis 2 in this Matthew 19 passage, marriage was thought up by God. Marriage is God's idea. And marriage in Jesus' mind is just like marriage in Moses' mind. It is, as verse 6 shows us, a one flesh union. This means in basic terms that one man and one woman come together and form a new family, one that previously did not exist. In doing so... Marriage, we see, is intended to be the first institution of society. Marriage is the first institution created in all the Bible in terms of human ordering, human society. There's not government first. There's not the nation of Israel first. There's not politics or something like this. Marriage is the first institution. The family is the ground of a culture and a society. So, a culture that has strong families will, in general terms, be strong. Jesus does not only want one man, one woman marriage, though. Jesus wants one flesh union. This is a phrase found both in Genesis 2 in the Old Testament and after this passage in Ephesians 5. You've already covered this in this series. This potent little phrase, one flesh, tells us so much about Jesus' view of marriage. It's just like the Apostle Paul's vision of marriage. One flesh means a total union of heart, soul, mind, and body. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, the Apostle Paul tells us that one flesh human marriage is a clear picture of the marriage of Jesus Christ and his blood-bought bride. Now, this is interesting. This is a wrinkle in Christianity. If you're new to Christianity, if you're figuring it out, if you're taking, you know, classes to study up on what it is, this sort of thing, Christianity says Because Jesus says it and his apostles teach it that marriage isn't its own thing. You know, just one man, one woman together for life. It is that. It is that by God's design. No man can alter God's design. And yet marriage is more than that. It's a picture of the love Jesus has for his blood-bought bride. Marriage is a living display then of the gospel. This is according to the design of God. In Scripture, the design of God creates order. Uh, According to the scriptural mind, reality is not what you and I think it is. Identity is not what you and I create it to be. God has constituted reality, God has made order, and God has shaped identity, even your identity. The fundamental marker of identity is the image of God, which both men and women have fully are made in that image fully. And yet the second reality is that either God has made us a man or a woman. And this is God's design. Marriage is based upon that one man, one woman design. So marriage is not something you make it up to be. An identity, your personal identity, single or married, is not something you create from thin air. You don't look at your feelings and say, this is who I feel like I am. You look if you want to truly know reality. You look at God's word, and you see God has ordered things, and you work from there. And so you recognize you're not supposed to create your identity in biblical terms. You're not supposed to make marriage whatever you wish it to be in biblical terms. You're supposed to receive God's vision and see it as good and to His glory. Marriage displays the gospel, and marriage also depends upon the gospel. There are two senses in which I think this is true. First we need the gospel working in us to be faithful to God's design for marriage. And second, we need the gospel working in us to be faithful to one another. In other words, we could say it this way, we need a lot of help, and the gospel is here to provide it. Now, let me be abundantly clear. Without Christ, you can get married, right? There's a lot of people around us who are not Christians who are nonetheless married. And you know, sometimes these stories even captivate us. We see uh, movie stars get married, and they both have great teeth and, you know, they're, they're so, it's always the teeth, and, and, and they're so happy-seeming and they have so much money and famous the world over and they can jet-set wherever they want, whenever they want. And we look at them and we think, that's a fairy tale. Can you imagine? What a beautiful thing. In, in a common grace kind of way, it is a beautiful thing. And yet, the marriage not long after tragically falls apart. Why does it fall apart? It's because marriage, in God's view, is not based upon compatibility. It's not based on whiteness of teeth. It's not based on shared vacation interests. It's not based on you and me liking to do the same things in our free time. Marriage is based on complementarity. Marriage is based on God's design. You can get married and stay married without Jesus, in other words, but you can't have a true one flesh union without Christ and his gospel. This means that we need Christ to be faithful to God and faithful to one another. What does it look like in a marriage for the gospel to strike? Because the gospel is not just this gentle word to us. It is this. The gospel is also a jackhammer. The gospel comes to us, and it breaks up stony ground, and it changes us, doesn't it? I mean, it, it sometimes doesn't necessarily ask permission. God sometimes just does the work, doesn't He? And it's a beautiful thing. Praise God He does. When the gospel strikes in our hearts, in our marriages, men are called not to step back, but to step up. Husbands are called, you've seen this in other sermons in this series from Pastor Mark, husbands are called to own their biblical role as a self, self-sacrificial, Christ-like leader, protector, and provider. So all around us, men are being encouraged to drop out and tune out. We're going to talk about this tomorrow morning with the men. Um, But in the Bible, men are called to step up and take responsibility and be the one in the marriage, for example, who holds fast to their wife. The opposite the way a lot of cultures have marriage, where women, you know, sort of hold on to their husband. No, 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 in the Scripture, men are called to be strong in the gospel, in the power of Jesus Christ. And the gospel accordingly calls women to put on otherworldly character, beautiful character. Wives have the high calling in the scripture of imaging distinctly Christian femininity such that submission to one husband is not drudgery, as it might seem to be, but it's delight and nurturing life, bringing life into the world as God would allow in whatever form, is a freely given gift. It's a gift. These aren't drudgery duties. These are glorious callings in God's sight. This is what the gospel helps us do then, empowers us to do, to be faithful to divine design such that God is richly glorified. Listen, we may be alike with our spouse, or we may be very different. There's some things you can say about how to navigate that, yes, but it ultimately doesn't matter. What matters is whether you and your spouse are living according to God's design by the power of divine grace. But this is not all the gospel does. This leads to our second insight. The gospel creates flourishing husbands and wives. God wants us to be faithful to one another, full stop. But God also wants us to flourish in marriage. Many people today approach marriage as if it is a temporary partnership. But this is not how the text encourages us to think of it. First, we see from from a text like this, working with Ephesians 5, that Christ has bought us. Christ has bought a people back from the dead, from judgment, from slavery, by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. That is the message, that, those words I just said, not my idea, God's, that is the message that saves sinners from everlasting judgment in hell. That is the one thing that can save. Jesus bought us, and Jesus is still finding sinners For himself today. Perhaps Jesus is after you. Secondly, God bound us together. Look there in verse six at this phrasing What therefore God has joined together? Jesus teaches here that it's the Lord God Himself who sovereignly joins couples together in marriage. Let's think about this together for a minute. We misunderstand Jesus if we think that he merely wants us to stay in the same house together for a really long time. For all of us who are called to marriage, the Bible understands there basically to be two callings. 1 Corinthians 7 fills out another calling. There's a calling to singleness in which you are free to serve the Lord, which is an honorable calling. Sexuality, the Christian single person declares, is not my fundamental identity, my sexual preference and sexual activity does not define me. The world says our sexual preference and activity does define us. And God says, no, no, I define you. I define your identity. For the Christian, Jesus is our life. That's the first and most important thing anyone can say about us and nothing else. And we recognize that that God wants us to see this wants us to see the beauty of singleness and wants us to see the beauty of marriage if we are called to the married state i think there are fundamentally probably going to be more married people and marriage is according to paul to be held in honor by all by the whole church whether you're single or married so there's there's not an oppositional relationship here between singles and married people in the church there shouldn't be we should each be cheering the other on as we live for the glory of Christ for those who are called to marriage, zeroing in on marriage this morning as we, are, we must do, God wants us to thrive and be healthy and know great joy in marriage. Think about the marriage of Christ and his church. It's not matter of fact. It's not emotionless. It's grounded in love. It's brimming with joy. It's filled with hope. Does that characterize your marriage? Is that true of your marriage? God wants spiritual marriage, marriage of Christ and church, to flow over into earthly marriage so that divine love is creating human love. This is what God desires. Our earthly joining together should naturally be full of these blessings. So this means that gospel-captivated husbands and wives seek the continual blessing of their spouse. That is a very different kind of marriage than many people around us sadly have, isn't it? I recall being on a road trip with an aunt and an uncle, a family member of mine, and uh, they just continually seemed to have conflict. And and I knew that they loved one another, Uh, they were dedicated to one another, but on almost a moment-by-moment basis, they would get into fights. And there were these patterns and scripts that they slipped into, It's not hard to do for those of us who are married. I've been married now 13 years, three kids, ages 11, eight, and five, girl, boy, girl. I'm not really deep into my marriage, but I'm deep enough to know that there are patterns that we slip into that are not good patterns. You know this kind of marriage. You know this kind of marriage where there's just kind of an ongoing feud, and it saps joy from the couple, and it certainly doesn't create blessing for the children. It creates all sorts of problems, In the lives of the children? A flourishing marriage is not one that plays beautifully on Instagram with just the right soft filter in the pictures. A flourishing marriage is one that has Christ in the center and Christ in the edges and Christ everywhere you look. That's a flourishing marriage. I say this, stop pressuring yourself to look perfect in all your family photos. Consider not giving great energy to trying to paper over the hard places in your life together when you're out in public. Recognize instead that the flourishing marriage is the God-centered marriage. You may have wealth or not. You may have beautiful children or not. Everything may go smoothly for your family or not. None of those things are flourishing in marriage. Flourishing in marriage is living out the fruits of the Spirit together. Flourishing in marriage is a husband loving and holding fast to his wife, looking her in the face in the morning before he goes to work and saying, I'm never leaving, I'm never turning my back on you. Flourishing in marriage is a wife following and helping and blessing her husband. It's a couple that tenaciously locks hands and never lets go through all the storms of life. Listen to me, if marriage is based on feelings, marriage will crumble. If marriage is based upon compatibility, that's a weak foundation. Our feelings are always going to shift. You can't trust your feelings. Our culture says this fundamentally, follow your heart. Could I give you a little different piece of advice? Don't follow your heart. (laughs) I need to not follow my heart. (laughs) I don't know about you. There are days when my heart is not telling me the truth. It's not leading me the right way. This isn't theoretical, this is practical. I need to follow something stronger than my feelings. I need to follow God. I need the word of God. It is the only thing sufficient to straighten out a sinner like me and a sinner like you. This kind of marriage where we hold fast, where we we lock hands and don't let go of one another by God's grace, this kind of marriage is experienced by a couple who has a vision. Have you ever talked with your spouse? about the vision for your marriage and your family you ever gathered the family around the dinner table and said where are we going what are we trying to do here i love that couple um i felt like a dave ramsey little bit earlier love dave ramsey man like addict for these dave ramsey stories of getting out of debt it's just beautiful listen to it on the radio on my way to work they had a vision right in order to do that living in the van apparently wow okay there you go i'm not doing that but i love i love that you got to have a vision for where you're going, don't you? You know this. At your workplace, you have to have a vision for the company to flourish. At your sports team, you have to have a vision to go ahead. In the military, there's not just a bunch of guys who say, all right, you know, we're here. you got to have a vision for what you're doing. So it is in marriage. It's no different. In fact, it's more important. It's more important because this is the only thing on earth that displays the gospel of Christ in living form. Your, your marriage, if God has called you to that state, is so important. It testifies to the reality of Jesus' love for his church. But many people out there don't have that vision. We all slip into this. I remember being profoundly disoriented and having no vision at a key moment in my life. It was in high school drama. So all the skeletons from the closet are coming out here this morning in public. It was a drama play. It was a play, school play, in small town, Maine and we lost the vision. Specifically, we started forgetting our lines. You know that being in a play together, there were like seven people on stage. If somebody forgets their line, then somebody somebody else gets tripped up, disaster ensues, yes? Disaster ensued. We wandered around the stage, this is a true story. We wandered around the stage for like five minutes in front of our parents, because it was basically just our parents who came, but we wandered around in front of them with no idea what to do. I mean, what, do, we, do we talk to the director of the play? Dire- what do we do? We didn't, we didn't know what to do. So finally, I, I said to my friend who had the line that closed the scene, say, this is simply a madhouse. 20 years later from my senior year of high school, I can't remember anything else from high school drama except that line. The closing <laughs> line was, this is simply a madhouse. True story as well. And he said, this is simply a madhouse, and the curtain closed, and the scene was over, okay. (laughs) It was terrifying. I still, I'm not joking, still wake up sometimes from a nightmare, recurring nightmare, in which I have forgotten my lines in a play, and I'm standing in front of hundreds of people, and it is, I wake up in a cold sweat, which is a gross sight, but it's true, it's true. That's how powerful disorientation is. It's a powerful force, isn't it? If you're not gonna go there in your marriage, forget the play, you've gotta have a gospel-powered vision for your home. This is very practical, isn't it? If God through his gospel has called us into marriage, then we've gotta put this into action. If God has given you this spouse, you direct all your charm and flirtatiousness and romantic energy to him or to her. You don't spread it out, you're not an equal opportunity charmer. You direct it to your spouse. You consciously think about your spouse throughout the day. You take pains to praise them with your lips. You say words that are encouraging to them. Few things have more power to bless than that. When your heart is pulled to someone else, you repent of those desires because the gospel is first about changing desires, not first about changing behavior, changing desires from the inside out for sinners of every kind. If all of this sounds like a lot to do, it is. You can't have this kind of one flesh union in a truly God-glorifying way in your own strength. Marriage, God-glorifying marriage, is not a matter of intellect or talent or even willpower. We all need the Lord desperately. At all times and in all ways, Christians are those who know because God has humbled us to see this, that we need Jesus. Single, married, whatever state, stage, background you have. We aren't just a Jesus-worshipping people. We are a Jesus-needing people. We are that weird is what I'm trying to say. We're not just the people who... You know, might say like a 10-second prayer at, uh, at the restaurant, you know, we are the people who will gladly confess to someone, I need Jesus. Jesus has rescued me. Jesus has bought me back from the dead. I tried to save myself. I couldn't do it. I only ruined my life. Now Jesus has put me back together. I need Jesus daily. This is true of every person. If you are here this morning and you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, I know one thing about you, though I don't know you. You need Jesus. And here's the good news He's here. We haven't run out of grace to offer sinners in the church. There's an infinite amount of mercy to offer sinners like you and like me. It's here today. Today, Today is the day of salvation for you. Not tomorrow. Not a week from now. Not a year from now. Today, if your heart is gripped by these truths, not because of the power of my preaching, but because of the word of God, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Close with Jesus. Back to marriage. Marriage is not a matter, then, of mastering certain strengths and then just getting it done in a very American way. Just get it done. Stay married. No, marriage isn't only for the gifted, talented, and willful. Marriage, in fact, is one of those places, actually, that God uses to make the strong weak. How many marriages populated by impressive people break down? Why do some very successful people who can run massive corporations, why do they struggle as fathers and mothers? It's because unlike other areas of life, there's no life hack for the family. There's no way, in other words, to just sort of solve the problem in the minimum amount of time. For a marriage to truly flourish in a God-honoring way, you need, here's the theme, you need Jesus. You, You need the Lord to flourish, to be faithful, to stay married, to have one flesh union. There's no other way, truly to honor God, but this. And so so listen, if you are lower today, if you're coming in low, if the marriage is not in the ideal state you wish it would be, there's hope. And, And there's, by the way, fraternity here. In other words, this is where all of us are. We're all working on our marriages, aren't we? We don't have to pretend we're not. We are not perfect people. We're not Jesus in the marriage. We have work to do on ourselves and our spouse does as well. So the church is a place where couples come together and they say, freely confessing, they need Jesus and they need help and they need to grow. This is what we say together. Not some of us, all of us. There's something that really does help, though, to grow a marriage, to make it strong, practically. And this leads to the third and last point. The gospel creates a heart of forgiveness. A heart of forgiveness. How exactly are we going to stay faithful to each other? In other words, sure. Okay, great. Let's be faithful. Yay. How? Recall the second half of verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. If we're not going to separate, we've got to figure this out. And here's a major key, I think, to figuring it out. You have to forgive each other. It's actually quite simple, isn't it? It's not really that hard to understand. We all have a tendency to sin, even as believers. It's not our identity. We have a new name. We're a new creation. The old man is gone. And yet, we still are tempted to sin, internally and externally. In the close contact of marriage, secondly, we're going to sin against one another. We have to know this. We have to be honest about it. And this means, thirdly, that as Christians, when sin happens, we confess our evil and forgive each other. We don't offer Hollywood apologies, I call them, if I offended you. Mm Mm-mm, I offended you. (laughs) It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard for all of us. I'm guessing many of us have offered a half apology and also the corresponding half forgiveness. Yes? I'm half sorry I hurt you. I half forgive you, in turn. What we truly need and what the gospel frees us to do is offer full apologies. And this will break up the stony ground of a marriage. This will altogether disrupt those bad rhythms where, you know, we're, we're fighting against one another with our responses. Asking forgiveness does this. We need to regularly ask forgiveness and regularly tell the person they're coming to us, that we forgive them. We can do this because of what God has done for us, right, as Christians. If God has forgiven us infinitely, we can forgive one another momentarily. How could people like us, who have been forgiven an infinite debt of sin, had it washed away and thrown into the ocean, how could we not turn and then offer forgiveness to our spouse, to our children, to our loved ones, Really, to anyone. This may be the greatest idea Christianity has contributed to the world. The apology. And true repentance. It's so important to remember how central this is to a marriage. To a gospel-powered marriage. Why? Because we probably aren't going to get the marriage we dreamed of. That's not because our spouse stinks. It's because the marriage we dreamed of probably wasn't realistic to begin with. Some of us are in marriage and we're thinking to ourselves, I'm not getting what I thought I was going to get. I thought this was going to be different. What we need in instances like that, in lives like that, is the gospel. We need to remember that God owes us nothing. God doesn't owe you, excuse me, a happy marriage. God doesn't owe you believing children. God doesn't owe you a flourishing career. God doesn't owe you anything. We only deserve judgment for our sin, everlasting judgment in hell. And because of his son, because of the gift of his son, God is not giving us that. He's instead giving us an infinite stream of grace and mercy. Friends, friends, if that's true of us spiritually, how can we not be changed practically? And by the way, we offer this forgiveness even if the other person doesn't necessarily understand their need for forgiveness. It's true in marriage. It's true outside of marriage. The Christian is the one. There's, there's a system of justice, you know, in terms of relationships and beyond. But we are the people who are ready to forgive. We're the people who take joy in forgiving, again, because God has forgiven us. That's the foundation. This is the principle we return to over and over and over again. The gospel allows us then in our home to die to ourselves. We're not going to get everything we want. We're not going to get everything we would like. Our spouse is not ultimately going to be God. So we have to die to ourselves. We have to die to bitterness. We have to die to frustration. We have to die to lack of fulfillment. And we have to instead not find our fulfillment, happiness, and satisfaction, contentment in how the relationship plays out necessarily, but in God, but in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can freely forgive, and we can keep going. We can keep going in hard times, We can keep going when the marriage is challenging. We can continue gripping hands even though it's hard. Remember this, friends, as we wind to a close here. The most powerful words in your home may well be, I'm sorry, I forgive you. Really, there's a ton of theology in the scripture and the Bible, but in practical terms, That's one of the key places Christianity goes. That's one of the most practical realities of the Christian life and definitely married life. I'm sorry, I forgive you. Can I exhort you for just a second? I don't know your schedule, but think about the the prayer time tonight. Think about using it as a springboard if you are in some of these habits and patterns which every married couple slips into. Think about coming and praying together. If you can't come tonight, think about having an actual time together as a couple to pray, to recommit yourself to one another, to forgive one another, to let the Lord do a new thing in your marriage. Much of what passes for an exciting life as we wrap up here is a mirage. We're we're continually tempted with the thrilling life, yes, the good life. Oh, if I could just break free of the shackles of my marriage or my home or my kids or my church, if I could just live it up. There's a wildness in our hearts that wants to break out, isn't there? And our culture today celebrates this wildness and whispers to us, even shouts at us, to let it out, to live it up, to break free, to be free. That's really the language that is used. The Christian life offers us the true good life good life isn't found in living according to your sin. The good life is found in living according to God, living according to His Word. And part of that is this, the thrilling life is the ordinary life. Home life is the high life, holding hands on the back porch, walking around the neighborhood in 94-degree Midwestern heat. You're doing it in Indy, I'm doing it in KC. Having an inside joke, sharing a milkshake watching a show together. Our vision of love is not the culture's vision. It's not seven minutes or seven hours of excitement. Our vision of love is seven decades of faithfulness. It's walking hand in hand all the way into death together. As life closes and and our days come to an end, if God has given us the gift of marriage, that we would grip hands together all the way until the end. And then, for all the bride of Christ, marriage truly begins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these things are too high for us. We need your power. We need your grace to live out your word. We don't have the strength in ourselves. Father, help all your people this morning to live according to your word. Bless singles who are not finding their identity in their sexuality this morning. Strengthen them. Bless married couples, Lord. Strengthen marriages in this church, in this room. Use this body for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.